So today we're going to look at the conclusion of Peter's first letter to the scattered church. The fifth chapter of 1 Peter is really a call to arms, thus the shield. It's a plea for Christian leaders to be strong. It's a plea for Christians to be faithful. And the shield is a reminder that while God sits on his throne, there is still a spiritual battle that is being fought around us. This whole series can be wrapped up in, in the images on this shield. If God had a crest, this might be something what it would look like. The, the three colors about God's holiness and our hope about his kingship and nobility and the red being the blood of Jesus, the throne being where God resides in heaven, the gifts being all of those things that he gives us to live out the Christian life and to share the love of Jesus with others. And the heart, which is the love of God who was put on display in Jesus and what it is that he did for us. See, there's this spiritual battle that's being going on, going on that Peter is so clear of. It's being waged in the world around us, but it isn't necessarily being waged by us. We are the ones who are a part, part of it. We're caught in it. And the battle is between the work that God is doing in and with and through people who look to him as their salvation and their hope, and the enemy of God who is doing his very best to thwart God's plan by confusing and distracting and deceiving people. It is very literally a battle between evil and good. It's a battle of choosing life, a life of sin or a life of discipleship. It is a battle that has been going on since before you and I were born. And you and I are caught in the middle of it. And, and the reason is the battleground isn't for a piece of land, it, it isn't for a place, it isn't for a space or a city. The battleground is for your heart and your mind. The battleground is for what it is that we will give room to and to whom will we give it. Make no mistake, now Satan has been waging war against God from the beginning. And, and today what he's doing is he's fighting for control of your thoughts, your actions, your affections and your attentions. And when, when we give in to sin, what we're really doing is giving Satan ground in our mind and our heart that doesn't belong to him. As a Christian, our mind and our hearts should be focused on God. We should be focused on the things of God. But when we sin, our attention is taken away. And the shield, along with the full armor of God that we're going to deal with in a moment, is a reminder that we're not defenseless. God doesn't set us out and tell us to figure it out on our own. God has given us everything that we need to defeat every effort that Satan would take against us. We, don't have to, we do not have to choose to sin. We are given the tools to stand against the enemy of God. So in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, starting in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter is addressing the, what we have as the last chapter of this book to a very specific group. Now, remember, the very young Christian church has been scattered. The Roman persecution has begun. People are being killed, literally killed for their faith. And so the people that Peter is writing this to have seen their friends, their family, people around them who are suffering and who have died for what they believe in. And now what he's doing is specifically talking to the leadership in that church, the leadership of the scattered church that doesn't have the opportunity to gather the way that we do this morning. 
Peter knows that in this time of persecution and being separated from each other, there is no time where it's more important to have strong, courageous leadership. Leadership that, that leans into the truth that they share and the truth that they're founded on, which is Jesus, and the anticipation of the future they're moving to. Well, guess what? This is every bit as true today, especially in these uncertain days of COVID and on the eve of this election that the entire world is watching as it was in the days that Peter wrote this letter. See, Peter is passionate about the church. He's passionate about the people of the church because Peter is passionate about Jesus. He spent time with him. He knew him personally. And he is doing his very best to pass along that personal time with Jesus to the people of the church. He wants them to be as passionate as he is about his love for Jesus. And so let's start right there today. What about you? What are you passionate about? Not the right answer to be in church on Sunday morning, but what are you really passionate about? Where does your time and attention and effort and money go? That's what you're passionate about. When your time is pressed and you've got other things to do, are you, are you worried about how you're going to get a little bit more time in the Word with Jesus? Or are you worried about how you're going to be able to go do whatever that thing is? Are you passionate about Jesus? Are you passionate about your church? See, Peter's employing, employing the church leaders as a fellow leader, as a stakeholder in the scattered church as one who knew Jesus personally for them to care so passionately and to lead with the same commitment and the same conviction that he has. And that message, that need, that call is as important in the Christian church of today as it was 2,000 years ago because the Christian church in America needs passionate Committed Christian leaders who love Jesus, who love people, and who want to teach people to love Jesus. 2,000 years ago, that was how the church survived. 2,000 years later, that is how the church is going to survive. Passionate people who are passionate about Jesus, passionate about their love for people, and passionate about teaching people to love Jesus. In verse 2, he goes on and he talks to these leaders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for a shameful gain, but eagerly. This is one of the verses that comes out of the New Testament that helps us with the name that we have for the senior leadership team at the Open Door Christian Church. We don't call them a council. We don't call the committee. We call them elders. We call them elders because on and on and on again in the New Testament church, we see that word turning up. Elders are the group of men that are called to lead the church. For the record, we don't have councils at this church. We've got teams. We don't have committees at this church. Part of the reason is, do you know what you call a group of gathered vultures? It's called a committee. On the other hand, and you can sit up a little straighter when I tell you this one, do you know what you call a gathered group of bald eagles or eagles? A gathered group of eagles is called a congregation. Now, there's a noble creature, huh? The point being, the senior leadership of the team of this church, we call elders. Because that's the term that the Bible uses to refer to those shepherds who lead the church. It's the same word that the Bible uses for Jesus. Now, here's what's important in this passage. I am a shepherd of the Open Door Christian Church. We have two other pastors who are shepherds of the Open Door Christian Church. But we're not the only ones who are called to shepherd. 
because we've got a staff team of people who lead ministry teams of volunteers, who then lead other people in doing the work that God has called us to do as a congregation. And sometimes we lead ministries where we oversee children. Sometimes it's adults. And there's all kinds of different directions and groups. But here's the thing. All of those people, the army of volunteers and all the people that we have an opportunity to minister to, need shepherds. That's more than what one or two or three people can do. And so you, every single one of you who calls yourself a Christian also has a responsibility to help shepherd the flock that God has entrusted to the Open Door Christian Church. We do it together. There's a reason the Bible refers to us as sheep. There's some very good examples of what that looks like and, and how that works when you, when you talk about having a shepherd. The Bible also talks about that people can be goats. You, you want to be a sheep, for the record. But the Bible is honest that there are also goats out there. So what does a shepherd do? A shepherd protects their flocks in, in, in the days that these words were written from the wolves and the wild animals that would devour, would prey on them. A shepherd feeds and waters and leads their flock to safe green pastures where they can eat in comfort and not have to worry about being attacked. They seek out and bring back the lost sheep that have wandered off and a shepherd restores those sheep and brings them back after they have gone astray. Why does that Make a difference in the church because, well, we do the work of, of looking out for and protecting each other. Sometimes we go through those moments where we need our church family to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. There are wolves in the world and around that we have to be protecting each other from. And sometimes we sin and we wander and we stray and we need the church family to lovingly bring us back and to restore us into the fold. So here's the deal. If you lead people in any way, if anyone looks to you for protection, they look for you support, for wisdom, if they look to you for direction, you're a shepherd. As the Bible describes shepherds, you're a shepherd. As a Christian, if someone looks to you for any of those things, you're a shepherd. Parents, you shepherd your children. Grandparents, you shepherd your grandchildren. Managers, you're shepherding your staff. Business owners, you're shepherding all of your employees. Teachers, you're shepherding your students. Now, you can do it as a leader, but Peter is saying do it as a shepherd, one who is concerned about their faith. When we take that on a larger scale, you know what? We're going to cast ballots on Tuesday, and we're going to trust that they're going to get counted. And it's going to be from the president all the way down to local local leaders and They have a responsibility to shepherd the people that they're elected to care for. And one of our prayers is that we want them to do it in a way that honors God. So how do we do that? He says in verse 3, by not domineering over those in your charge, but by being examples to the flock. Unfortunately, domineering is what we see in so many places in America today. It's part of the fight that we see going on in the media. Whether it's from families or churches or the federal government or world politics, there's an election in two days to decide who it is that will lead us. In a lot of cases, it's a a lot less about the people whose name is on the ballot as it is is about the party that they align themselves with, the views and the beliefs and the agenda and the special interest in the big money that's behind them and what they stand for. And unfortunately, rather than leaders who are shining examples of godly goodness and decency and kindness, 
we see far too many leaders who are more concerned about their own gain. They're, they're arrogant, they're self-indulgent, and they're worried about grabbing as much money and as much power as they can in the time that they have. And yet, as Christians, we're to be examples to each other of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. We are to live in a way that points not to our goodness, but to the goodness and the love of Jesus. And when we go to the ballots and vote on Tuesday, one of the things that we need to be aware of is that those people will shepherd us My prayer is that they do it in a way that honors God and honors us, the people who elect them. See, we know that the only real power in this world comes from the throne of God. That's it. We elect people and we give them a time where they have authority to make rules and laws and to make decisions. But the only real power in the world comes from the throne of God, our creator and redeemer. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory with What Peter is doing is encouraging these people to look ahead to the hope that they have. Now, not everybody in the world shares this hope. And part of our job as shepherds, part of our job as disciples, is to share the good news that we have so that other people would understand the reason for our hope. What he's talking about is when Jesus, the good shepherd, returns, he's looking forward to the day that Jesus is coming back. And so my question is, are you prepared? The phrase you hear in church so often is, is your salvation secure? It's a real simple way of asking this question. Is Jesus your Savior or are you trying to do it yourself? If your best efforts and, and your good days and, and your, your good acts are what you're expecting to get you into heaven, you're going to have a sad day when you get there. When we say, is your salvation secure, what we're really asking you is, is Jesus your Savior? Have you given yourself to Him? Have you submitted your life and your will to His will? Do you know when that day comes, will you be going to heaven or will you be going to hell? Likewise, he says in verse 5, You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pastor Patrick would say to us as a staff team, stay in your lane. He'd say to the young ones, as it relates to the old ones, stay in your lane and listen to what they've got to say and obey them. Your lane is to be a kid. Their lane is to be an adult and to lead you wisely. That's what Peter's saying here. He's simply reminding the younger people to listen and follow the leadership of the elders and then for everyone to clothe themselves with humility. We have seven incredibly godly, prayerful men that lead this church. One of the things that always has given me such great encouragement is that they do such a good job that people don't worry about the decisions that are being made because they see the godly and the good results of those decisions. Because those men lead with humility. Clothe yourselves with humility. What does that mean? When you clothe yourself with something, it's the first thing that people see, right? It might be that you've got on a big jacket, unless you've got crazy hair, and if you do, I'm I'm a little bit jealous because I have none. Sometimes we notice people by their hairdos. More often than not, you notice people by, by what they're wearing. That's the first thing that you pay attention to. You might not recognize them, but you see what they're wearing. And so we describe people that we don't know. We describe people that we don't see more clearly by what they were wearing. It's what the police often ask. Do you remember what they're wearing? Peter says, clothe yourself with humility. If someone sees nothing else about you, let them see your humility. Let them see that you are clothed with humility, not about you, but about Jesus in you. Wear humility like a big old winter coat. 
that you might come walking down the sidewalk and people don't recognize you, but they recognize the humility that you're wearing. Let that be the first thing that someone sees. Verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. We can either choose to be humble, or we can choose to be proud and arrogant and to ignore what God desires of us, and God can humble us. And God will humble us. To be humble is to be submissive in spirit. It is to be meek or modest in appearance and behavior and attitude. To be humble is to be like Jesus. My definition of humility, and I've used this before, my definition of humility is very simply, it's very simple. To know who you were created by God to be and to live fully as that person. To know who you were created by God to be and to live fully as that person. That means if you're living humbly and you know who you're created to be, whatever these gifts are that God might give you, they don't make you better than the next person. They make you you. And when you're clothed with humility, you use those things for God's glory, not your own. You use it for the good of other people, not for your own good. And so whatever it is, the gifts might be spiritual gifts, it might be talents, it might be more money than other people around you have. If you're wearing humility, you're using those people, using those things for God's purpose with people. You're not using them to gain power or authority over people. The Bible says that when God exalts us, we will stay exalted. But when we exalt ourselves, we're really just building ourselves up on a bed of straw and there's really nothing there. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When we choose to hold on to our anxieties and worries, and, and we've got to have a moment here where we explain something. I used the word anxieties in a series we did a little while ago, and I got some kickback from people, and they say, well, you, you can't get upset with us for being anxious for having anxiety because it's a medical thing. Okay, so let's, let's take the word anxiety and let's understand it as worry because that's really what this is talking about. Casting all your worries on him because he cares for you. When we chose, choose to hold on to our worries, when we choose to think about them and lay awake worrying about them, and, and we choose to take time that we could do other more productive things because we're paying attention to that, we're taking all of our attention away from God and we're putting it on our own efforts. When you worry, you're taking attention away from God and you're putting it on what you feel responsible that you have to fix. Not only is it not living in humility, but it's opening our minds to attacks from Satan. Here's the deal. If you're worried about something and you don't pray about it and all you do is worry about it, what you're essentially doing is saying, God, this is too big for you to handle, so I've got to take care of it on my own. On the other hand, if you're worried about something and you bring it to God in prayer and you say, God, I can't deal with this. I can't fix it. I don't know what to do with it. I'm going to trust that you take care of it. You can now not worry about it anymore because whatever the result is, whether you like it or not, you can trust that it is within God's will for you. It is going to, it is going to seek and serve God's purpose, even if it's not your preferred result. So that's why we say around here an awful lot, if you're going to pray, then don't worry. But if you're going to worry, don't bother praying. Here's the deal. To worry is to trust yourself more than Jesus. And I know that hits hard, but it's true. If you're going to worry about something, it's because you're going to trust yourself and whatever you can do in a situation more than you trust what Jesus can do with that situation. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Satan is at war, and we're fools if we don't recognize that. We're absolutely crazy as Christians, especially when you decide to live as a disciple of Jesus, if you don't realize that Satan is waging a war and you are what he's after. The thing is that Satan knows that he's lost. 
Satan knows that he's lost the war, but here's the deal. Jesus died on the cross, and for a, a few short hours, Satan thought that he had won. He thought that he had defeated God, that, that death was his, that there was nothing more that could be done, and then Jesus rose from the grave three days later, and Satan knew that the war was over. That Jesus left the grave to a new life, to an eternal life, and Satan had lost the war. He'd been defeated forever. But what happens is he continues to wage these little battles. He skirmishes. He, he fights little bits and pieces, and he's after us. He's, he's like a bandit, like a thief, like a liar, like a cheater. Peter says like a roaring lion. But here's the deal. A lion, whether a male or a female lion, it doesn't need to roar to prove that it's the biggest animal on the prairie or on the savannah or the plains of Africa. Every other animal knows that it is. It simply makes that noise to let them know that it's there. And Satan roars like a lion, but he has nothing else to back it up, unlike a lion. All Satan's got is a bunch of noise and, and, and no real teeth. But then the Bible talks about another lion. The Bible talks about the Lion of Judah. And that's referring to Jesus. And he's the one who comes to seek and to save the lost, not to destroy. Jesus doesn't need to roar. Because Jesus has everything in the world that he needs to back up his intentions. Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. These folks all thought that they were the only ones being persecuted. They thought that they had it the worst of all. And you and I have all had that thought, that no one else can understand what we're going to. Nobody's ever faced what we're facing. This is the worst thing anyone in the world's ever dealt with. Actually, Peter is saying, you know what? There's, there's a group of people all over the world that are experiencing similar things. It's where Ephesians 6.10 and the verses following come into play. It says it like this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's the beginning of the section of Ephesians on the armor of God. And what the armor of God is, it helps us to be spiritually and mentally ready and prepared for the battle that is already being waged. You don't have to come up with new tactics. You don't have to come up with a new line of defense. You just simply need to know what it is that God has provided you with. And so if you've got Bibles, go to Ephesians 6. We're going to go to verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The armor of God is specifically written in the Scripture with the understanding that there's a spiritual battle going on and that it is what allows us to stand against the schemes and the plans and the plots of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, uh, withstand to that evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, you get in the word stand, stand, stand. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which with you can extinguish the, all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, which protects your mind and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end to keep alert with all perseverance and making supplication for all the saints. There is your defense. God has given us, given us everything we need to defend ourselves against the battle that Satan would wage against us. And what is the one thing that we need to do proactively? Pray. We need to put on the whole armor of God and we need to pray. 
See, God's word is our hope. It's the, it is the promise of our salvation. And in those armor of God verses are all the tools that we need to stand firm and strong in our faith. Verse 10, it goes on. It says, after you have suffered a little while. Some of us feel like we've suffered a lot. This is a very different kind of suffering. This is persecution suffering here. After you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. As a Christian, God and God alone is our hope. God is our strength. God is our salvation. God has created you and established you and will restore you when you put your faith and hope and trust in him through Jesus. When you accept the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers in the death and the resurrection that he went through for us, It says in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Dominion is another way of saying the word power. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. It's another reference to the throne of God. No matter what happens around us, God is still on his throne. You know, people will talk about things are bad or things are getting worse or things are whatever. And my response, I've learned to say, but God is still on his throne. And I know that God will always be on his throne. And whatever appears to be the truth around us, I know that God is still on his throne. Peter's declaring that God is the only one who rules over us in power and might and love. And so to a Christian, God is our strength. God is our shield. God is our truth. God is our hope. And God offers us salvation as a free gift through Jesus. Hmm. Pastor Patrick? Amen. Thanks for that reminder and thanks for that message. And um, to those of you that know Christ... Uh, Are you tired of suffering? Are you in that spot where you just continually uh, feel as though uh, everything is a struggle? Man, if so, let's let's shift our eyes back to to Jesus in this moment and and just have an opportunity to set our minds right, not be anxious. Let's go ahead and stand up real quick. Um, And we're going to also talk about gifts, tithes, and offerings, but when we talk about this, and, and our students at, at Youth Group, Pastor Steve, we get a lot of students that come in from the outside, and we don't know exactly where they're at, and they might not be our church family, uh, whether it's online or, or here in, in the service, and, and so we try and just ask them, where are they? Where are they with God? So today, if you're online or in your, you're in the service, and you're just like, I don't know that that message necessarily spoke to me as a follower of Christ, but it spoke to me like I want to be a follower of Christ. Man, I'll be in the back of the church. You can type online. Uh, We've got some people online you can chat with. Man, we would love for you to be in a relationship with Jesus. This can apply to everyone. Let's pray. We'll receive our gifts, tithes, and offerings. Father, thank you for today. Thanks for this opportunity to uh, gather Uh, Father, whether it's online or in person here, Father, we're grateful to to have your word to look at and for elders and shepherds to lead us all to the path of righteousness, to the throne of God. So, Father, as we go through today that uh, we answer that question, what am I passionate about? And, Father, we pray that that answer is you. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.